Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. Hey, I want to personally invite you to our first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's a conference at the Outcomes Rocket and the IU Center for Health Innovation and Implementation Sciences has teamed up on. We're going to put together silo-crushing practices just like we do here on the podcast, except it's going to be live. With inspiring keynotes and panelists to set the tone, we're conducting a meeting where you could be part of drafting the blueprint for the future of healthcare. That's right. You could be a founding member of this group of talented industry and practitioner leaders. Join me and 200 other inspiring health leaders for the first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's an event that you're not going to want to miss. And since there's only 200 tickets available, you're going to want to act soon. So how do you learn more? Just go to outcomesrocket.health/conference. For more details on how to attend, that's outcomesrocket.health conference, and you'll be able to get all the info that you need on this amazing healthcare thinkathon. That's outcomesrocket.health conference. Welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. I really thank you for tuning in, and I welcome you to go to outcomesrocket.health slash reviews, where you could rate and review today's podcast, because we have an outstanding guest and an amazing contributor to healthcare. Her name is Ann Weiler. She's the CEO and co-founder at WellPepper a clinically validated patient engagement platform. She's really focused on this space and has been for quite some time. She's also a healthcare blogger. Her site, healthworkscollective.com, is really a, a site that you all have to check out because she dives deep and wide into all the topics in healthcare that matter, and it's very well organized just as her and her business are doing for other practitioners. They're very well organized in helping them improve patient adherence and outcomes for patient care plans. So without further ado, I just want to extend a warm welcome to Anne. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Phil. It's a pleasure. So Anne, anything that I missed in your intro that maybe you want to highlight? No, I think it was a great intro. We, uh, well, Pepper focus on interactive care plans for patients, and we've taken the approach to say that if you help patients understand what they need to do and you break it down into actionable and engaging experiences, they will actually do it. And so, you know, I think I'm not the one to coin this, but the patient is definitely an underused resource in the whole healthcare path. And that's really our focus. And then we help to scale the clinicians with technology. So starting to observe what's happening with patients and alerting the care team if they need help, as opposed to saying, care team, here's a bunch of people you have to manage and more work that you need to do. And my back background, as you might tell by this intro, is in technology. So I spent 10 years at Microsoft before founding this company, and including um, three years running a business group in Microsoft Russia. That's pretty interesting. So you, you started off with Microsoft, went over to Russia, and looped back around. So And now you're in healthcare. So tell us a little bit about that. What was the spark that got you into the medical sector? Well, you know, like a lot of people, and I think a lot of people who, who came from technology into healthcare, it was a personal experience. Um, my mom contracted a rare autoimmune disease, and she spent six months in the hospital. This is a wow. disease that caused temporary paralysis, oh and goodness. so that's why she was in the hospital. So she, she had great care, and she mostly recovered. Um, she had some permanent nerve damage, but she mostly recovered. And the problem was when she was discharged, so she went from having 
round-the-clock care and physical therapy and occupational therapy and physician check-ins all week to a month before she could come back into the same facility for her outpatient visit. And so during that time, we didn't know what to do. And we had to hire some private care for her. And we couldn't even explain to them what had happened, which is basically that she was sent home with no instructions in over a month before she would come back in again. And, and that lack of continuity of care made me sort of think, hmm, you know, we're in constant contact the rest of our lives with these mobile devices. Why is there this lack of continuity of care in healthcare? And that's where it all started. And we were very fortunate. My co-founder and I, he's also someone who was at Microsoft. The two of us actually met at a startup in Canada that Microsoft acquired in 2001. But we were very fortunate very early to meet Dr. Terry Ellis, who's a PhD researcher and professor at Boston University. And she saw what we had prototypes, basically, and really felt like there was a, an opportunity to partner so that was really sort of our first positive nod on the journey was finding a really great research partner who has since completed one randomized control trial and one another trial that was sort of a quasi-control trial to show that the software works and that it has efficacy and that you can actually engage patients outside the clinic. I think that's super great. And Anne, thanks for sharing that story. Uh, super glad to hear that your mom's doing better and sort of the spark that got you into this, the road has it has meandered, and you guys have been <laughs> in it for five years, which is a long time for a startup <laughs> in healthcare. It's a, well, it, someone said this, and this is about startups in general that half the battle is not dying. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But, but I would say, I would say in healthcare, also half the. I mean, the, that's definitely half the battle. In that, you know, we met organizations very early on who thought that we were doing something quite interesting. And then when we were still around two years later, then they're like, oh, you're still here. Great. Now I can work with you. So, yeah. you know, healthcare, and there's a good reason why, but they are fairly risk averse. So a number of factors had to come together to get us to the point that we're at now. And certainly when we first started, there, we got questions around, well, what are you doing? This doesn't really seem like a thing. And now we're getting how are you different from all of the other patient engagement experiences? So a number of things have happened in that the focus that CMS has put on outcomes and certainly patient reported outcomes has been a real, real benefit for us. Certainly bundles where you need to think about overall costs of care. And then we also see lots of interest where there's an access to care problem and whether that's a specialist who has a very long waiting list and, and is there a way to get people on boarded and engage them before they come in, or certainly in organizations that have a large catchment area with rural. I mean, even, even our researchers at Boston University, and you think of Boston University as being very urban, but they work with specialized patient population who have Parkinson's disease. And so people may be coming for three or four hours to come in to the, see the specialists in the clinic and if they don't have to come back, that makes a huge difference for them. For sure. Oh, it sounds like you guys are definitely making an impact. And without a doubt, the hot topic here, folks, is patient engagement. What do you do when, when your patient leaves? What do you do when your loved one leaves? And how do you make sure that they get the care that they need, that continuity? And Anne and, and her team are, are definitely focused deep into this. Anne, can you give the listeners an example of how you guys have created results, improved outcomes, or improved yeah. profitability? 
Definitely. So I think I'll, I'll start with some of the research, the research studies and, our, and the results that our research partners have found. But we also continually are analyzing the patient interactions and the patient experiences within the software to find results and outcomes as well. And that's both on the patient outcome side and on the effort and cost side from the healthcare organization. So on the studies, we partnered with two different PIs. One was Dr. Terry Ellis from, she's the director of the Boston University Center for Neuro Rehab. And they completed a randomized controlled trial with uh, an exercise intervention, exercise strength and conditioning intervention over 12 months for people with Parkinson's disease. The usual care condition, which was the control piece, was that you would come in and you would have a couple in-person visits and an assessment, and then you would go home, and then they might see them again in 12 months, or they might never see them again. And then the digital intervention was the a personalized application that had personalized video of the patients in it and the ability to be monitored remotely by a clinician and message with that clinician over the 12 months. So the difference between basically the, the usual care condition and the group that had the mobile health intervention was a, a striking physical outcome. So the people with the usual care condition saw a 12% decline in their mobility over a year. And the people in the mobile health interventions on 11% improvement. And that 12% decline is, I know, and, and, and that's what happens each year from the first year you're diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So if you can stop that, you keep people self-sufficient. You keep them sometimes in the workplace. You certainly keep them out of long-term care facilities. Now, that study, we then went and uh, we did some initial and additional research on a couple of things in it because it was not particular like it was it was not looking at cost it was looking at efficacy but then of course the next question became well how much did the clinician have to engage with the patient outside the clinic and what were some of those engagements and what was the cost of that really not not hard cost because we that wasn't designed into the the intervention up front but a couple of things one was that in working with these people remotely, the clinician was able to notice things. Either the patient messaged and said something about, you know, I didn't really like this, or I find this one really, this exercise that you want me to do really hard. Or they would also look at them as they were recording their outcomes themselves and seeing whether they were progressing. And the, the clinician was actually able to change the program remotely. So she nice. could add in yeah, she could make it harder. She could make it easier. She Sometimes she said she just took things off of their program if they really didn't like it because her goal was to keep them doing something. So I think that was really key. But then we wanted to also look at the sort of the effort of messaging because when you talk to clinicians, as soon as you open up this channel for messaging with patients outside the clinic, there's a fear that they're going to become overwhelmed with new work, really, because patients weren't messaging before. We think that some of that is actually a replacement of messaging can be a replacement of phone calls. And then also that messaging can tell you about things that and alert you to things before they become adverse events. And so that's why when we we're constantly looking at evaluating 
the efficacy of our product as well as how people are using it. So we went back and we did some analysis on the messaging in this scenario. You know, we de-identified the data and did this analysis and applied machine learning to it. When we classified the messages that were sent back and forth during this year, we found that 70% of them did not require a response. And then we found that 3% of them were urgent. So what's interesting here is that the 70% of them that don't require a response were things of patients journaling. They were using this to talk about their experiences. And for the ones that were urgent, things like, you know, I had a fall or, you know, I went to the ED. Those are things that you mm-hmm. want to reach out to the patient and find out more about. And the other interesting thing was that there was actually no correlation between messages sent by the provider and adherence, which actually meant that thinking back to the 70% of messages don't need a response, that the fact that there was someone on the other end that they knew they could get in touch with this this person and that this person was watching their progress was enough to keep them adherent. It didn't really matter how much that provider reached out a message. So we had a couple, most of the time the messages were equal. So the patient sends one, the provider sends one. But we had this one patient who was like some outliers, somebody who sent 150 messages and someone who sent 600 messages. And the provider did not match those messages one for one. And those people stayed adherent. Yeah. That's interesting. Just the basic (laughs) feeling that somebody's on the other side ready to support you. Yeah, that absolutely was a key driver. Now, because that study didn't specifically look at cost, we actually entered into another study and the Boston University folks were part of that study, but it was led by Dr. Jonathan Bean, who's uh, an MD and a professor at Harvard University. And that study was, it was called a quasi-experimental design. And, and what that meant was that they had done the study as an in-person intervention already. So they did a one-year study did an intervention, and the intervention was to prevent people who were at risk of falls from having a hip fracture. So that, that they knew their intervention worked, but it was also very people and in-person intensive. So people right. had to come in. And again, that was, it was also conducted in Boston. People had to come in to do the intervention. And so while it worked, it was hard for people. They weren't necessarily, they often had to find rides or there were a lot of Boston had a lot of snow. So what they did was becomes an issue, right? And scalability is an issue. So they did the, the same study, so the same intervention, but then did it with a digital experience. So it was very similar to the Parkinson disease study, which is is why how we ended up in this. And that one they have not published yet, so I can't share the details. But they did have better than expected and clinically meaningful outcomes. So patient outcomes, patients had improvements in during the course of the study. Now, the other piece of that study is that there are researchers at Brandeis School of Public Health who are analyzing the cost. Um, we're really excited to see that when it comes out because hip fracture is basically for seniors, you know, that's the really the beginning of the end of their quality of life. Once you have a hip fracture, your quality of life really declines and risk of increased mortality and also increasing expenses. Mm-hmm. So if you can keep people from having a hip fracture, you know, it's going to be good for everyone. So look at comparing the costs of, of doing this program and helping people outside the clinic to the cost of a hip fracture, I think we're probably going to see some pretty pro- positive results, especially since 
the cost, it was designed as a digital intervention. So the cost should be pretty low. And super interesting. And no doubt, you know, the, once you get that hip fracture, it becomes the kiss of death uh, oftentimes. So it's interesting that you guys are focusing there. Definitely a key area. And thanks for sharing that, right? I mean, you guys are diving deep into the clinical validation, truly shows your commitment. Take us through a time when you had a setback or had a, a made a mistake. What happened? What did you learn from that? As a technology company, you know, I think there's there's always times that you're constantly trying to improve the software, tr- constantly trying to improve the patient experience. And I think it's it's not so much around setbacks as much as making sure that you're continuing to learn as you go along and you're continuing to tra- uh, challenge your assumptions. So, you know, we have, I think the software is a, both an art and a science, especially when you get to the user experience, because you think about things that you think intuitively, this is what I think it should be, but then you also need to continue to test them. So very early on, we were trying to think about what what is the optimal number of things that you should ask someone to do if you want them to be adherent. And before we had enough data to, to really test that, our assumption was it was probably about three things a day. Mm-hmm. And we asked clinicians and they had no idea. And you'd see clinicians sending people home with a list of 20 things to do. And so then when we did the testing, we found that it was actually five to eight things. Five to eight tasks in your care plan is the right number to keep you adherent. So it wasn't so much a setback versus a, wow, our assumptions were incorrect. And another place I think is sometimes, again, with technology, you can become very enamored of the technology that you're building. And you always have to remember to think about the end user and ask the end user. And so an example there, um, I'm not sure if you saw, but last fall, we won the Alexa Diabetes Challenge. And a component, thank you. And a component of our solution there was a voice-powered scale and foot scanner that looks for early signs of diabetic foot ulcers. And when we first conceived of it, cool. you know, we were just so excited because we thought, well, this is really cool. You know, we're very yeah. excited about technology. And then we were talking to one of the, the coaches in the program who's a behavioral health expert. And she said, what are you going to do to make sure people aren't afraid of having something that takes pictures in their bathroom? And we, we were just, we all looked at each other and thought, how did we not think of this? There are those beautiful stories where people go, go all the way to market with something and then they haven't thought about that. But so we caught it before we really even tried our first prototype with patients. But we were thinking, well, the value of this is so great that it's going to find these fit ulcers early. It's going to prevent amputations. It's going to prevent hospitalization that we kind of forgot that maybe somebody didn't want something taking pictures in their bathroom. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing, right? And a great story to share, Anne. For the folks listening, if you're working on on solutions, don't get too enamored with them. Get the feedback from people. Put it in their hands. Put it on their feet. (laughs) Yeah, and be willing to have people tell you that your baby is ugly. (laughs) Totally, totally. (laughs) I love it. No, what a great share and truly appreciate that. What would you say one of your proudest leadership experiences in, in healthcare now that you're in this business have been? Well, I probably to date would be our announcement that we made at HIMSS that we will have Mayo Clinic care plans. So their best practices for interactive care plans will be available on the WellPepper platform. Yay. Uh, that, Congratulations. Yeah. That when we started, you know, we were, as I said, we were so fortunate to meet Boston University very early on, but I don't know that we as 
non-healthcare people would have said that our goal was we were going to have have Mayo on our platform. Um, so I think that's pretty big, and it's something that we've been working on for a long time. So we always took the approach to say that health systems probably would want to use certainly best practices or their own interactive care plan. So we've built a platform that's very flexible where you can create any type of care plan from these individual building blocks. And so that this ability for health systems to license Mayo Clinic's care plan is something that's been in our roadmap for a long time, but we needed to get to the right moment of having, obviously, you know, the, the care plans from the leading research hospital in the country, as well as health systems really understanding what it means to engage patients outside of the clinic so that they would be ready to use these care plans. And you know what, I think the great thing about this, this proudest moment is I'm positive they're going to be even more that we'll be able to build on this and deliver even more innovation. That's awesome, man. Congratulations on that. And in our healthcare economy, it's not only important for us to develop cool things that are going to help improve outcomes, it's also important to get impact. And this partnership with the Mayo will be an incredible way for you guys to increase the impact that you make in healthcare. And, and it's super yeah. exciting. We had Lee Ace. He's the director of, uh, of social media at Mayo. And he told mm. a story about the Mayo brothers and the things that they did to improve their impact. They traveled the world. And they brought people from all over the world to Mayo and talked about what they were doing, learned from what they were doing. And I think you guys are sort of following in that tradition, getting into that place where you could just teach other people how this software can help them improve healthcare. And it's super exciting. So really, really congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is about scaling this best practices. And then it's also about learning from the patient interactions with those care plans. And that's something that, you know, we couldn't do before. So we've had, in watching what people do and analyzing their results, it helps improve all of the care plans. It helps improve how people interact with patients outside the clinic, but we can also really improve care. So, you know, I talked a little bit about the outcomes that we've seen from research, but we also have seen outcomes just in collecting this data. So we've been able to identify patients who are at risk of of readmission from their reported side effects from surgery, which is not usually the thing that when you get your post-surgical instructions, it's really about symptoms. And certainly the symptoms, if you have shortness of breath or chest pain, that's the thing you want to look at first because you really should be calling 911. But what we found was that people who weren't having those symptoms but were having side effects from surgery like nausea or constipation actually had a three-time greater risk of readmitting within 30 days. And that was in an ambulatory surgery scenario. Now, you wouldn't know that unless you are actually collecting data, this data from patients in real time. So that's the kind of stuff that, that we really are excited about being able to do is finding those, those sorts of of outcomes. Um, we also had an interesting situation where one of our customers initially just report uh, deployed patient-reported outcome surveys. So, you know, the ones that, that CMS and other insurers are starting to require to show efficacy of, of the program. And so for the first year, they only had those surveys. And then the second year, they added a complete pre- and post-surgical care plan. And there was a 26 percentage point difference 
in the people who just were doing outcome surveys to the ones who had the complete care plan. So again, this is helping people outside the clinic will improve outcomes. And patients want to do what they're supposed to do, that today a lot of the ways they're receiving these materials are make it really hard for them to follow the instructions. And super cool, no doubt that your mom would be proud. And, you know, that, ex- <laughs> that experience that you guys went through, now you're, you're going to help others not have to go through. And that's super exciting. And let's pretend you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful in medicine. It's the 101 of Ann Weiler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so we're going to write out a syllabus here, you and I together, four questions, lightning round style, followed by a book and a podcast that you recommend to the listeners. Okay. Ready? Okay. Yep. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Empowering the patient and understanding the patient's goals. Often the patient's goals are very different than the clinician's goals. And I think the most important thing is knowing that you're actually meeting the patient's goals. So we enable patients to set their own goals and track progress against those goals. And that I think is both the biggest motivator, but it's also the most important outcome. That's a great call out. What would you say the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid is? I think from my perspective as a technologist, and and I actually think for health systems as well, the biggest mistake is, is pilotitis. I think that we're at the point now, there's clinical research that shows that these solutions work. We know that people want them. We know that they can save money. And when you do too many pilots, if you don't have the right metrics and you don't, it really doesn't signal the right commitment. And so I think jumping in and really deploying something and continuing to improve and tweak it is probably a better approach than a number of small pilots where you're not entirely sure what happened. Love that, Anne. Avoid pilotitis, people. <laughs> Get committed. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Oh, I think that that our technology background really helps with in that we're constantly looking at new ways to interact with patients. So the, the work that we did with voice came out of that, you know, and voice is not widely deployed in healthcare yet, but I think it has uh, huge benefits in that the experience is so natural in healthcare. You're, you're used to talking to someone. You're used to being interviewed by someone. And so I think these voice technologies are going to be a really great way to improve. So I think with technology, there's always something new. And so staying on top of that and then evaluating the impact that it could have on your solution or your patients, that's really what we do. So voice and machine learning, are, I think, are the two things that we're really excited about going forward that will have a great impact. Of that. What's one area of focus that should drive everything in a health company? <laughs> My patient. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. I love that. No, it's so true. And, and thanks for walking us through that. What book and what podcast would you recommend to the listeners as part of the syllabus? I think everyone should read An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal. It's a tough book to read because she breaks down everything that is not working in our healthcare system, as well as how we got there. And so there are points when you're reading the first half of it where you think, I don't know if I can can go on. It's very hard to, to read. But then on the second half of it, she provides very actionable things that we can all do. But I also think it's really important just to understand how we got to here, because if you want to undo where we are and you want to improve it, you have to understand the past. So that that's my hands-down recommendation for healthcare books right now. I know that every year something new comes out that 
that's great. I think that's one that, that everyone should read and it is now in paperback. And then I think on a podcast, I really like A Healthy Dose, which is from Oxian and Bessemer, so two venture capital guys who are, they interview people in the industry. And I really like how they are really teasing out, like, what are the macro trends? Like, where are we going? And also optimistically, too. So they've had Jonathan Bush on, and he was really great. I mean, it was one of my favorite podcasts because it was just after the things had happened where they had that agitating shareholder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think he had really taken some of that to heart and, and both like you could tell how much he cares about the mission that he's on, but also like not satisfied with the status quo. Love that. Some great recommendations and, and listeners. I know we recommend a lot of books here. All healthcare leaders have amazing ideas. Anne has recommended another great one. What we do is I recommend that you go to outcomesrocket.health slash audio, and you'll get access to Blinkist, which is a software that helps you reduce the time that it takes to vet out books. I know that the one that Anne recommended is going to be amazing. You'll probably buy it, but check it out. And Anne, this has been super helpful. I know that the things that you're doing are truly going to make a difference at WellPepper. Why don't you close off the session with uh, some closing thoughts and then the best place where the listeners could get a hold of you? Well, I think closing thoughts, I think we're just really at the beginning of this journey. And I think some of the insights that we're going to see from patient experiences and patient-generated data outside the clinic are really going to drive improvements in care, both in, I think, the way that people are able to take care of themselves, but also clinical insights. So we're very excited about about that and about the interest in patient experience and patient-generated data. And yeah, you can find us at wellpepper.com. And as you kindly mentioned in the beginning, we have a blog. We try and talk about topical issues, conferences that we've been to. And if you wanted to get in touch directly, uh, you can use info at wellpepper.com and someone from Wellpepper will follow up with you immediately. Amazing. And this has been a ton of fun. I really just want to say thank you for sharing the amazing work that you guys are doing over there. And uh, listeners, I encourage you to check out the show notes and the transcript. We'll provide links to Anne's blog, as well as links to Wellpepper and all the amazing things that they're up to. So Anne, just want to say a final thank you and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you. It's been, uh, it's been very fun to talk to you today. And I very much appreciate anyone who's so focused on outcomes. Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast. If you want the show notes, inspiration, transcripts, and everything that we talked about on this episode, just go to outcomesrocket.health. And again, don't forget to check out the amazing Healthcare Thinkathon, where you can get together to form the blueprint for the future of healthcare. You can find more information on that and how to get involved in our theme, which is implementation is innovation. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash conference. That's outcomesrocket.health slash conference. Be one of the 200 that will participate. Looking forward to seeing you there.